0: So I want to segue into this morning's message by way of this last week. Um, A lot of you know, some of you don't know, that our high school ministry, once a year for decades now, I don't know how long, only Sharon Hans would know, um, go up to this place up in the mountains, and they call it kickback. It's a time at the end of the school year where you kick back, right? And um, it's been a tradition to go up to the area of Coloma, which has the nice, cool um, South Fork of the American River running through it. Well, that, that area where we're, we traditionally have gone for a number of years got wiped out by the floods this last year, so we couldn't go, right? And a number of us staff goes too. Um, so we went to an alternate site, and the site is, uh, is renowned now. It's uh, known as Lake Minden uh, Resort, which is like just a little bit south of Marysville, okay? Now, I don't, you probably were watching the temperature last week, but um, I think my app said at the hottest point it was 111. So, so all our students are up there, and um, we pulled in and um, opened the door. It just felt like a furnace. It really did. And not only did it feel like a furnace, but the lake there called Lake Minden is only a lake in the forensic sense of lake. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating in anything I'm about to say, um, Get out, went to the lake, and it smells like dead fish, it really does, and on the i think it 's the south end i don 't know for sure there were actually floating fish you can 't see to the bottom of it it 's like murky we didn 't know this this is an r v resort it 's thousand trails, okay, just saying can 't see to the bottom, uh, you stick your feet in, and this is no exaggeration at least on the edges it 's about ninety five degrees the pool so our students, I, let me just tell you, my attitude starting out was not good, just honestly. I was just thinking, man, I don't know that I can make it six days here, right? Um, even the air conditionings the, couldn't keep up with the heat. That's just, that's just where we're at. And I just found my attitude being somewhat poor um, until the end of the week. You know, they have this um, dedication night when, when kids are just encouraged to respond to what they'd heard all the week, um, the previous nights. And um, to stand in the back and watch as a number of kids, um, I should say students, uh, students responded to, um, t- to receive Christ and commit to following him for the first time. And then to see a number of our students, some of whom are personally con- connected to me, say that they just wanted to renew their commitment to follow Jesus. And I just realized in that moment that, my, one, my attitude was bad, and two amazing things happened there. You know, and it, it was just a, a reminder that, you know, it's so easy to get sucked into the circumstances of, man, this is really harsh weather, it's bad, uh, bad lakes, things like fish, and it's 111 degrees outside. To lose sight of the stuff that just really matters, right? Really. Um, we're not going to go back there, by the way, but I'm just saying. <laughs> to lose sight of the stuff that just really matters, and that is eternal things. It's like, that's why you're there. And um, and how how when you are able to remember and kind of set your mind on the horizons of, the, of eternity, then you're, you're, you're able to see your current miserable circumstances in a better light, right? I mean, I, I was reminded this, of this even this morning. I opened my, my devotional Bible. It's a journal Bible, and that's my practice on Sunday morning. And my bookmark in the book of Psalms is a picture of me and John Hansen. For those who are new, our former... Um, founding pastor, our late former founding pastor and the picture is of him and I and I put it in there for a reason that he's out fishing he has his arm around me, he has a grin from ear to ear and he's holding a really huge I think it's a black bass Um, on that fishing trip I got skunked which for you non-fisherman type means I didn't catch anything but he caught a huge bass and he's grinning from ear to ear I think the the photo was snapped 8 years ago And, um, and I put that in my bible to remind me of something it reminds me that life is short and that we should be doing important things with the time we have left. And when you can remember those things, like life is short and what are we doing with the time that we have? It's, 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 um, it, it just, again, lifts your mind up out of the, the sometimes absorption of the present circumstances. And, uh, and that's, that's what it's, it's done for me. You know, we have, as, as a community of believers, we have resources the rest of the world doesn't have. We really, we really do. Like, we can see because of the scripture gives us eyes to see from horizon to horizon. We really do know that history comes from somewhere. It comes from someone. And we know that it's going somewhere to Someone. And we believe that that someone is involved in it all. And we have that ability as believers in the Bible to believe there's this overarching story which enables us to see the world differently. Like, Are we supposed to engage in present tense problems and circumstances of child raising and social issues? Absolutely. But we do so from the vantage point of knowing the beginning and the end of the story and knowing eternal truth, which is why we don't have to pick up guns and shoot senators. Because we have something bigger than that. And this this segment of Exodus, we are on the very last plague. Ten total plagues, if you haven't followed us or you're just joining us. After nine sequences of horrible plagues that have left uh, uh, Egypt in ruins, literally in ruins, especially economic ruins. The fishing industry is dead. At least it is for a while because the Dead Sea turned to blood and everything died. The livestock, the cattle, the sheep, the oxen are dead. That's the, that's the, the, the cattle industry. Um, the fruit trees and the crops, what wasn't destroyed by, by hail and by fire was, was eaten by the locusts. The whole thing is in ruins after all of these plagues. And each time... Moses, excuse me, Pharaoh refuses to let God's people, his chosen people, Israel, go, which brings us to this final plague, the most intense, the most uh, unique, and the most personal in terms of personal harm and injury. And yet, at the same time, this final plague is, is different than the rest, and it crystallizes this is this is where we 're going. It crystallizes for us um, ultimate truth it crystallizes for us ultimate truth in terms of divine judgment in terms of divine salvation, and our responsibility to appropriate it or those are the three movements of what's in this text. Or you can think of it differently. As the main problem we face as humanity, the only solution that God provides, and then our responsibility to appropriate or take hold of what God has done and bring it into our hearts. That's that, that, that this, this final plague crystallizes those things in ways that I hope... Um, God in a gracious work will bring from being some kind of an abstraction and for some of us it's not an abstraction for others it might be into the real realm of conviction. So most of you have heard this story before so I'm going to summarize um, most of it and I'm going to touch down in just a couple of places. Uh, as with the other plagues God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh with this final plague um, that's going to affect him personally. And he does. He goes and speaks to him. And this is what he says. This is, this is his message, final message to Pharaoh. He says, thus says the Lord, says Yahweh. Remember that name? He asked, who is this Lord that I should let Israel go? Always in the name of Yahweh. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. That's when the clock strikes twelve. At the dark part of the night, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, and these are in ancient languages this is the firstborn son or the firstborn male, um, firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handbill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, whatever is left. There shall be a great uh, cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such such as there has never been nor ever will be again. So this is the warning. This is what's going to happen. Now again, I mean nine successive times God said, this is what I'm going to do. And Pharaoh refused to listen. And every time God followed through on what he said he would do, and something gets destroyed. You would think after a pattern of nine, God is batting 100% here. You would think that Pharaoh would maybe consider giving up in light of the fact that this one is aimed at his firstborn heir to the throne. But he doesn't. As the text tells us, the Lord hardened his heart. Other places it says he hardened his own heart, which means he was involved in the choice. Hardened himself, he became so, so stubbornly committed to this that he was risking the life, not only of his firstborn, but the firstborn of the people in the land. Now that's the warning. As you, as I told you, he he stubbornly resisted, and so now I'm going to kind of fast forward to the fulfillment of what actually happens at midnight. And the Jewish people knew that this was going to happen. And if they had clocks, like a cuckoo clock, you know, cuckoo, cuckoo, it kind of hitting 12, they would have thought this is the dark hour when God sends out his death angels into every house. It says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house. There wasn't a single house where someone was not dead. Now pause there. Remind me to come back to verse 31. I thought about this and personalized this in terms of just in my own family. And you should too. Uh, my father is the firstborn in his family. He would have been gone. Um, I am not the firstborn. I would have been passed over. I have a firstborn son, so I would have lost a father and a son, and my children would have lost a brother. There would have been the loss of first cousins and second cousins and neighbors and close friends. That his death would have been Everywhere. And everyone would have been coming apart. Like, that's where we're at. That's what happened. That is biblical history. Verse 31, it says, then he summoned Moses, finally. What in the world was he thinking? Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up. Up. Go out from among my people, both you and your people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said. and Be gone. And bless me also. Interesting little uptake at the end. This is the final. This is the, this is the in a manner of speaking, the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is what caused the liberation of God's people is this fatal event. This is personal, it is intense, and it is primarily, though not exclusively, aimed at human life. Now this is worthy of reflection for a moment. Why is this the final plague? Well, there, there, there are certain things that are different about it. One One is that While people may have died during the previous nine, their death would have been inadvertent. That is, man, I forgot there was a hailstorm today, and I walked outside and got nailed by a huge falling uh, stone of of ice. Inadvertent. It's not direct. This particular last one was aimed primarily, though not exclusively, directly at human life. That is, God's presence, other passages tell us it was the death angel. His his ministers of death went into the houses. It was direct. God putting people to death. Executing people. That's unique. None of the other plagues target life, human life, directly like this. The other difference is, is that the people of Israel are not excluded which is why they're given very special instructions. If you don't do this, the, the implication is this is going to happen to you too, which means it's an equal opportunity plague. Jewish and Egyptian, both. In other words, you will die if you don't carry out these particular instructions. You're going to die. The final plague is death. It culminates, it climaxes in, in death. Why, why is that so important? And I... I believe that the answer to that question is to consider it in light of the whole of what the Bible says. Namely, that within the context of the opening act of human history, where God says, Listen, if you disobey me, you will die. In the fullest extent of the word, you will die. Now, we tend to think in the 21st century that death is a cessation of physical life. and That may be a part of it. But the Bible speaks of death in the fullest, most holistic sense of the word. That is, Paul could say that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we're in a state of death because prior to knowing Jesus, we were in a state of alienation. We were in a state of separation. We were in a state of exclusion from God spiritually excluded, spiritually dead. Then, of course, there's the physical dead aspect of it, of actually being separated from your body. But then there's the final and fullest extent of what death really means, in which eternity is added to both physical and spiritual death. And by physical death, I don't mean cessation of existence. This final plague alerts us to is a foretaste of, like, the ultimate and final act of wrath against human sin and evil, which is why the Jewish people are included. This is the final act of judgment. At the end of the day, it's not just about having plagues of locusts and frogs, and rivers that are poisoned, which the book of Revelation talks about. At the end of all the plagues is death. And that's where it ends in Revelation, too, at the end of the Bible. This is just a foretaste of it. And it brings this the big picture, like sc- screaming to the center and really clear. This is what's at stake here. So that the, the apostle John could write at the end of Revelation, when he sees this final act of death in all of its sense come to fruition, it says... Then, it says, then the sea gave up the dead who were in it. That is, maybe you thought they were forever gone down in the depths of the Mariana Trench, but no, sea gives them back up, and death and Hades, the place of the dead, gives up the dead who were in them, and each one of them, each one, each singular person who has ever lived, human being will be judged according to what they had done. And it goes on to say, Then death in Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, which is the lake of fire. And whatever that means, it's far beyond anything that Stephen King could ever conjure up. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, referred to twice elsewhere in Revelation as the Lamb, this book of life, keep that word lamb in your mind, it was thrown into lake fire. That's the second death. This final plague gives a foretaste of this is where it goes. This is where God and his justice go with a wayward, sinful, rebellious creation. It ends in death in the fullest extent. Eternal death. Now, I I realize that for some, maybe even in here, that is an embarrassment. Because it seems in our irreligious culture that this is almost too mythical. It, it, It seems like implausible and impossible. It just doesn't sound right. And so we easily just kind of either don't talk about it, Or we're offended by it. Or we ignore it. Or we redefine it. But the fact of the matter is, this is, from beginning to end, Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, this is the final act of wrath against human sin. And if God said that he was going to do the previous nine, and he did... That means that this is a truth. This means that this is a certainty. This means that this is an inevitability for this to happen. And it's something we must believe. It has to go beyond uh, an abstraction to a reality. Otherwise, we'll never have a sense of urgency for telling people about Christ there will never be a, a, a healthy, mature development of what we call the fear of the Lord. This is this is the truth, and just because it's abstraction for some doesn't mean it's not a truth that will happen. Do you remember what it was like pre nine eleven? I'm just maybe I'm just speaking for myself, and if I am, then then I'm the fool. But. I theoretically could have believed that a skyscraper could fall from the ground, much less two. Theoretically, but I didn't really believe that that could happen, like, in the practical sense of belief. And many of us didn't. It's like, no, that's just too apocalyptic, right? That Something that high would come down. And there we all were, 7 o'clock plus in the morning... September 11th, 2001, eating Cheerios. Those is what we were eating. My son was four sitting at the table. And Peter Jennings stutters, unable to speak, as he witnesses this, something that the world thought could never happen. Most of us know we're going to die on a theoretical level. Some on a more conviction level because you've lost someone close to you. But the day will come when that which is theory will become a reality and you know it. And here's the thing. We can't, as God's people, allow that to be an abstraction. If it doesn't affect us in any way, if it doesn't create in us a little bit more fearfulness before Almighty God, if it doesn't create in us a, a healthy sense of reverence and awe, For what God had to overcome, namely his wrath, in order to save us. Well then, the truth of the matter is, simply put, we really don't believe it. Belief is more than affirmation. Belief is conviction of a reality. That's, that's, That's Hebrews, right? Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And when you're convinced something's true, it changes you. That is this ultimate reality to which this final plague points it is death and yet, extrapolate it out in the fullest sense it means the final act of death final act of wrath and that should create and if we don't have a sense of compulsion or conviction about it we have to repent we really do we have to own up to the fact that i i'm not really believing this stuff But when it becomes a conviction, it creates a healthy, humble, and grateful fear. Because in this same final, intense, personal, fatal plague, God also provides a singular way out. A singular way out. That was the point I just made. He gives instructions to his people, very specific instructions. And we're just going to focus in on the Passover lamb mostly. And here's the instructions. This is the way out. This is the way to be shielded. He says, tell all the congregation of Israel, the first speech we looked at was to Pharaoh and, and then the fulfillment of it, and this one is to the people. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his near, nearest neighbors shall take Neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, number they could gather together, according to what each can eat, so you shall make your um, count for the lamb. Your lamb, now pay attention to the details. Your lamb, and a lamb is uh, by definition uh, a lamb that's under one year old. Your lamb shall be without blemish. It shall be a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from its goats or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day. So they keep it four days. Of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. I read that wrong, but when they do, they're going to kill it just as the sun is going down on the 14th day. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house. That's the, the part over the top of the door in which they eat it. So they're not only supposed to paint the blood on it, they're supposed to consume this sacrificial lamb. It is the Lord's. Passover for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments and take a pause there and recognize this is more than just human this is to bring down the entire pantheon of Egypt's idols they will be rendered powerless when all this is over all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. And no plague will befall you, to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial. A, 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 a memorial, <laughs> in the wrong place. Day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. So these are the very special instructions. What they're supposed to do when when the clock strikes 12 and everything is dark, this is what they're supposed to do. It all surrounds this Passover lamb. Let me just draw out a couple observations about this lamb. One, there were no, no alternatives to this. This was the only way. There wasn't a door number one, door number two, or door number three. God's way of escape didn't accommodate to a consumer culture that says, well, you know what? I happen to be vegetarian and vegan. I can't eat lamb. No offense to you, vegans or vegetarians. (laughs) There were... No alternatives given. This Passover lamb and its blood is the only way, no other way of escape. You're not going to get on a plane and fly out of Egypt? It's not going to work. You can't build a bunker or a bomb shelter. Nothing. This is the only way, one way to escape. One, only one. It has to do with blood. Well, that's observation number one. It's the only way. Which we individually minded humans say, "Well, wait a second. What about my individual rights here? Don't I have a right to a different menu?" It's like, no, one way. The Almighty says one way. This is it. Blood. Second observation: a lamb of all things, or 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 a a, a goat. Why that? We didn't. We're not talking about the goat of a, a blood of an aardvark or a baboon or a hippo or a zebra. It's like, why a lamb? <laughs> Because a lamb is a symbol of something innocent. And they were supposed to pick a perfect one. Lambs are vulnerable, right? They weren't given talons. They weren't given claws. They weren't given razor-like teeth to tear flesh. They have very few ways of, of defending themselves, which is probably why they became a symbol of innocence, vulnerability. It's going to be a lamb of all things, something innocent. Something vulnerable was going to have to give its life. But it was a third observation. it's It's a male. It's a male. Flawless. Perfect. Innocent lamb. The plague targeted the firstborn sons. Males. And they were to offer up perfect male offspring, innocent and perfect. The the point to be made isn't really all that hard. The only way, the only way to be shielded from or delivered, the only way of escape from the wages of sin is there has to be a substitute. There has to be a perfect life offered. This is all the way back 15 centuries before the cross. There has to be a flawless lamb, vulnerable and innocent, offered for the sake of the unrighteous. It's all the way back right there. It's the only way Someone else has to fall. Someone else has to die. The innocent gets killed while the guilty goes free. You see? This is at the very heart of the Bible, the heart of the gospel, and you realize this isn't New Testament. This is at the beginning of the Bible in the first five books of Moses and brings into crystal clear focus what is the only way by which a man can be rescued. And it is the blood of the Lamb. Now, here's the deal. This is as this plague was a foretaste of death to come, so this Passover lamb was a foretaste of someone to come. And so, 15 centuries later or so, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and they're eating the lamb, and they're drinking from the cup, and they're taking of the bread. And then he goes to make the traditional speech, only he radically recenters it, not on Egypt, and not on Jerusalem, but on himself. And he says, this is my blood of the new relationship or new covenant shed for many. What he's saying in those words is the Passover lamb, the innocent one who has made himself vulnerable, is here. And it's my blood that will free you and free you alone. The life of the perfect lamb to let the guilty go free. The substitute. That must, those words must have hit his disciples like a freight train. And they probably didn't recover until later. What do you mean this is about you now? It is. He's saying I am the center. And the only means by which a person can be released. The only way. The only way. It's introduced as this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The only way to escape this death in its fullest, eternal sense is one thing. One thing, and that is, there is a lamb that has been slain. But here's the deal, and I want you to see the contrast because it's marvelous. In Exodus, it was God striking down the firstborn son of Pharaoh that brought release. An act of judgment in or at the cross. God the Father, in a mournful anger... He struck down his own beloved eternal firstborn son. God did to God the Son what we deserved. God the Son, though he existed in perfect glory, he's the one who humbled himself and made himself vulnerable. Subject to death so that we might be released. And not just released to be in the neutral zone, but the whole purpose of this Passover, even back then, was to bring this, those people to himself. And that is the end goal, As God delivers the sacrificial lamb in order to bring us as his cleansed people to himself. That is the wonderful and beautiful end to the message of the gospel to bring us to himself or he will lead us into the promised land of a new creation. Now, you see, this is gospel. This brings it all just crystal clear. Death, substitution. Justice and steadfast love. It's the only solution. But let me just finish this with the response, what is a person 's only response? Here you have death, and you have a substitution. What must we do? What is a, what is a person to do do how, how are we How were they supposed to respond and there really is only one response: they had to believe that god 's words were true, that blood would be sufficient enough to keep. The powers of the death angels outside. They had to believe the words were true, that the blood was sufficient enough to rescue them. And the text tells us that the people of Israel went and they did so. That implies that they believed Moses' words, they believed God's provision, and they acted on it. They didn't build bunkers, they didn't take flights. They trusted alone in the, in the integrity of God's word that the blood is enough. And they, they, they took out their little bowls where they would have gathered the blood of the lamb. And they would have went out there with their hyssop and they would have started painting. Well, they're painting in faith. And then they're consuming the, 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 the meat of the lamb, making this sacrificial lamb part of who they are. They had to respond in active faith. Not, there's no such thing as passive faith. When you believe something to be true, when you believe God's word is true, and there's, he's saying, this is sufficient for you, it's enough, and it's as simple as this, that it's just the blood that's needed. And you trust him. And in this case, they applied it to the doorposts of their, of their homes. Church, that's, the, that's when the New Testament insists that it's by faith alone that we are saved. It is an act of faith that says that, listen... God, you have supplied what's necessary, and there's nothing I can add to it. Can you imagine if the people of Israel would have thought of a different way? It's like, you know what? Again, the vegan speaking. Let me just put a little list of personal accomplishments along with my involvement in nonprofit organizations, and maybe that will work on my door. Nothing. I know it's cliche to quote a song, but nothing but the blood, period. And I'll tell you, church is is, as routine and as old as that sound, it sounds it is the most fundamental, the most important, the most profound, the most life-altering, guilt-freeing truth of all times. Because we come in here after a week having committed so many different Acts of offense against the Lord, whether it's just discontentment over the fact that you don't have what you think you should have or an angry spirit or um, you had an intemperate moment with your wife or your child or you had a wandering lustful eye or a lying heart and you come in here. And the the tendency of the pride-ridden heart is to try and figure out a way to self-atone. It's like, well, I blew it today, and so if I can make it another two or three months, well, then I'll feel good about myself again. Well, you know what? That's relying upon your own ability to self-redeem your life, and that cycle will end once again in another downturn and failure. The Lord says, no, that's not where you go. You never go there. You always come back to the same place when we struggle in this life with our sin you always come back to the simple truth that it was the blood and the blood of Jesus alone that has rescued you and saved you and bought you. That's it. All that performance stuff you do to make yourself less guilty, that's just you. That's you adding that little list onto the doorpost saying, but I did this. Like, that's nothing. We are to trust Completely in the sufficiency of the fact that Christ paid it all. And if we can go beyond, if you can go beyond the abstraction to the reality, then you know what that does? And Which is why we, we we're told in our Passover redone, remember me over and over and over again. You have to remember it is by my sacrifice that you're forgiven and saved. Once for all. Um, so that we can come to the table as a community of faith and remember, this is where it's at. This is the foundation of our salvation. And that that we take it so that we can experience that freedom that he's given us, the freedom of forgiveness. See, we can find our hearts just renewed in a renewed love for Christ and what he did for us and find greater strength to actually walk the Christian life that comes from this. So as you as you come this morning, I just... Maybe a, a, a simple question to, to think about and pray about as you come to the Lord's table is, do I really believe, by way of conviction, about the death in the fullness sense that I deserve, the death in the fullest sense that Jesus took for me, and do I actually believe that it's enough for me? Do I actually believe that it's enough to let me go free this morning? Do you believe by way of conviction these truths? These are the eternal truths of the church. So as as you come, let's hmm, let's come back to the center, back to the source as a community of faith. As I, well, I should give instruction for those who are brand new to us. Just follow the crowd if you're a follower of Jesus. um, This is his table for his followers, for those who believe in this. Um, come and partake of the bread and the cup. We do have um, gluten-free, just have to ask for it. And, um, and remember the body and the blood of Christ that was sacrificed on our behalf, our true Passover. As I pray, will you, um, those who are serving, come and take your place at the table. Father, in these moments that we have, these are uh, physical representations, symbols that communicate historical truths. These are to remind us of the real day and the real time, a real cross on real ground where a real person with real flesh and real hands and real feet was slaughtered. Because he made himself vulnerable, though innocent, to give us as sinful people a way out. Help us, Lord, in the participation of this supper to be convinced of their truths and cleansed by those truths in Christ's name. Amen.